Well, today, let me begin with this story. So uh, a few years back, uh, I landed in Batesville Court. Down Main Street, uh, I was there to uh, pay for a traffic ticket that was, I had lost, and it was overdue, so I had to go to court, you know, and I was there, and, and if you've ever been to uh, Batesville Court, it's a pretty interesting uh, environment. You know, I, you know I'm, so I'm there, you know, and, and if you've ever been there, you know that you've got to go up, and everybody's alone. You, you stand before the judge by yourself, and, and uh, so uh, everybody's in the audience there, and of course, I'm S. Swanson, and so I've got to wait until they get to my name. They go in alphabetical order. Everybody's going up there, and they stand before the ju- judge alone, and they make their case so that they plead guilty or whatever they're going to do. And then the uh, judge, uh, you know, makes his verdict. He makes his decision. And uh, like I said, everybody was alone, pleading their own case, until it came to one man. And uh, one man stood up, and he was there with an older woman. This man was probably about 45 years old, and the woman he was with was about 70, and it turns out this older woman was his mom. And so he starts making the case, you know, here, I've done this, and I've, I, I owe this, and, I, and, and I've done this other thing, and the judge is just getting a little bit, uh, a little bit angry because the guy was just a real, uh, you know, uh, mess of a person. <laughs> And so the judge shakes his head and he makes his verdict and it was pretty, it was pretty strong. And at that moment, his, this man's mom pipes up and she just went to bat for her son. She said, oh, judge, you, my little boy here, he's just, remember this guy's 45 years old, my little boy here, oh, if you only knew him, he's really a nice guy and he, you know, he messes up sometimes and I know he's kind of a wreck, but boy, if you knew him growing up, you know, and, the, and so she goes to bat for him, you know, and the judge this whole time, his, his glasses go down and he's looking at her as she's making the case and when she's all finished, he looks at the man and he says, son, you're lucky your mama's here. And then he passes the judgment, and, and of course he reduced the fine, and then something incredible happened. The mom actually paid her son's fine. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are shaking your head, heads. He is way too old to have his mama paying a fine for him like that. You know, he should be taking care of her, and she should not be going to court with him. This is ridiculous. Uh, you know, this is enabling, and all of that is true. But as I, as I was sitting there waiting to stand before the judge, I wished that my mama was there too. <laughs> I wish that I had someone to go to bat for me like that. I wish I had somebody in my corner uh, arguing my case for me like that. And what John is going to say here this morning in his letter is that for all of us who know God in Jesus Christ, God goes to bat for us like that. We have somebody in our corner. His name is Jesus. And so John here, remember, this is a letter, and the theme is knowing God. Uh, John is writing this how-to manual, and he's telling us how we could uh, know God and experience God. And throughout his letter, he keeps on circling back to the, uh, the atonement, the person and work of Christ. He circles back to that again and again and again. And the reason why he's doing that is because there were false teachers in the church that were claiming that they knew God. They were claiming that they had experienced God, but at the same time, they were denying their need for Christ and the cross. They were saying, yeah, we can know God and we can experience God, but there is no reason why Jesus Christ needed to die for us. We can have God without Jesus. 
In fact, John calls these false teachers antichrists, and that sounds so ominous, you know, the antichrist, but what it simply means is that they were people that denied Christ. They said, we could know God, but we don't need Christ. They were antichrist. And what John does in our verses here this morning is he shows us why it's so crucial that Jesus Christ died for us, how we could only know God because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Because notice what he says here is that in Jesus Christ, we have an advocate. And so John begins and he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so John says that in Jesus Christ, all of us who come to God have an advocate. Now, the Greek word is is the word peri- or, or parakletos, and I had to remember that by, you know, thinking of a soccer player, a soccer par- player has a pair of cleats, right? And so the Greek word for advocate is the, is the word paraclete, and it essentially means somebody that goes to bat for us, one who pleads the cause of another in a judicial court of law. And what John says that He's saying here that, that we need Jesus Christ to come to God. We need, God to, we need Jesus to enter into God's presence because Jesus Christ is our advocate. advocate. In Jesus Christ, we learn that God is for us, that God is in our corner, that God goes to bat for us, that God is our advocate. What does that mean? So today we're going to ask three questions. Number one, why do we need an advocate? Number two, how can Jesus be the advocate that we need? And then number three, what practical difference does his advocacy make in our lives? Why do we need an advocate? How can Jesus be our advocate? And what difference does it make in our lives? So number one, why do we need an advocate? Notice John begins here and he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The reason why we need an advocate is the reason why anybody needs an advocate, why anybody goes to a lawyer. Why do you go to a lawyer? You go to a lawyer when you have broken the law. You go to a lawyer when you're in trouble uh, with the law, when you're a lawbreaker. And when John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, it's important that we know what John means by sin. What does John mean when he says the word sin? It's an important question because sin has kind of gone out of our uh, currency nowadays. You know, sin sounds so old-fashioned. It sounds so puritanical. But what does the word sin mean? Well, notice uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, John defines it. He says, if any, if he, everyone who makes practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what is sin according to John? Class? Lawlessness. Sin is breaking the law. Now, it sounds so objective and it sounds so cold, doesn't it? You know, breaking sin is just breaking God's law. But it's important to know that anytime we break God's law, it is highly personal. It is not cold and objective. It's a highly personal thing to God when we break his law. You know, when, when we break a traffic law, for example, so uh, when I got the ticket that I went to court for, I remember, I remember that day. I was going down the road, and I, I was stopped by a police officer, and, and I, I rolled down my window, and the cop came up to the, the window, and he looked at me, and he said, he was very kind and, and, and nice. He said, hi, sir, how are you having a good day? And I said, yes. And he says, do you know what the speed limit was? And I said, yes, it was 30. 
And he says, do you know how fast you were going? And I said, yes, 120. And then he said, um, I'm just kidding, I wasn't going that fast. And then he says, you broke the law. And then he wrote me a ticket. He didn't break down and say, how could you do that to me? No, 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 he wrote me a ticket and he smiled at me and even looked at me and said, have a nice day. Very objective, very cold, I broke the law, I got a ticket. But breaking God's law is totally different than that, it's personal. Because you remember last week, uh, we learned that God's law is a reflection of God's self. It's a reflection of God's very character. And so God says, do not lie because he doesn't lie. God says, don't steal because God is a God of integrity. God says, love your neighbor because God is love himself. And so anytime we break God's law, we break God's character. We transgress his values. We transgress God's self whenever we break a law. So it's highly personal when we sin. When you commit a sin, think about, think about it like when you transgress your spouse at home. You know, you, every person has, who's got a spouse knows that a spouse has laws, a spouse has rules, a spouse has values. And you transgress your spouse when you reject their values. You do something that goes against what they deeply care about. And the relationship is broken there. And John says, sin is like this. Sin is when we break God's law, and therefore when we break God's character, when we hurt God's self. And he says, I don't want you to sin. He says, if you really know God, you're not going to want to sin against him. But notice what John says here. He says, but if anyone does sin, I love that John says this, but if anybody does sin, John is a realist here. And he knows that although sin is horrific, and although no child of God would ever want to do this to their heavenly father, he knows that the reality is that we sin, and we sin all the time. Notice how pastoral he is. He says, my little children, if anybody sins. You see, John, you know, most pastors, they talk about how to stay away from sin. This is how you avoid sin. This is how you stop sinning. What John is going to do is say, okay, I'm going to assume you've already done it. What do you do afterwards? You've already broken God's law. You've already become a lawbreaker. What do you do now? And it's important to know, what do you do after you've sinned? I remember uh, going to a marriage counselor, and I told you this story before, but uh, we went to the counselor, me and my wife, before we got married, and the first question he asked was, have you ever been in a fight? And how do you answer that question if you're in the marriage? You know, there's no good answer to that. And so uh, we, my wife and I, we had been in a fight. In fact, we just had a fight that morning. It was about marriage counseling. And so we said, yes, we've been in a fight. And he said, good. Because marriage is all about what you do after you've offended each other. You're going to offend one another. The question is, what do you do next? You're going to offend God. You're going to transgress his laws. What do you do then? What do you do afterwards? This is what John is concerned with. Because John knows that when we, conf- when we sin against God, even when we confess our sins to God, it's not over. Because when we break the law, we always find ourselves in a court. We always find ourselves with accusers. Oh yeah, we can confess those sins, but haven't you noticed the voices that come afterwards? The voices of accusation? And maybe the voices come from other people. You know, you, you've sinned and, and you've confessed your sins to God, but, but other people want to press charges. 
you know, and, and, you know, God will forgive us, but, but people oftentimes are not as forgiving as God. And so you may have accusers in your life, maybe in your family, maybe your spouse or your coworker or, or a friend of yours that, that will not let that sin go. You remember uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, scarlet letter where the woman was caught in adultery. And uh, they, of course, they, they said, oh yeah, God forgives you, but you got to wear that scarlet letter for the rest of your life. Because they were not going to let her off the hook. And the church should be a hospital for sinners, but we all know that we can be way more judgmental than God. And Jesus knew this. Do you remember John chapter 6? There's the story of the woman caught in adultery, and she's surrounded by accusers. And Jesus looked at them, and he says, he who was without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, all the accusers went away. And so there are people that accuse you. You may confess your sin to God, but you know that there are people that are not going to let that thing go. Uh, The devil accuses us. And so uh, John, uh, in in his writings, has a name for the devil. He believes the devil is real, and he's got a name for the devil. He calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. Because this is one of the things that the devil does after you sin. You know, first he tempts you to sin. He says, oh, go ahead and do that thing. It's not a big deal. No problem. Uh, God probably doesn't care. It's, it's, it's It's not bad. You deserve it. All that stuff. He tries to get you to sin. And when you do sin, then he gets loud with the accusations. I can't believe that you did that. How could you do that? God could never love you. God could never want you. You're worthless. You may as well just walk away. And so the devil accuses us. There is spiritual evil that hurls accusations at us after we've sinned. Some of you know that. John even knows here that that we can accuse ourselves. And so later on, uh, John says, there's this little verse where he says, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. This is so psychologically insightful. John knows that there's an inner voice inside of all of us, that even though we may confess our sins, that voice will accuse us over and over again. A voice that, that, that goes on and on, litigating and arguing and saying, you're not a good person, God wouldn't love you, how could you stand in God's presence? And you may not even be a Christian, but you know all about this voice. You may not even accept the word sin, but you know all about the accusations. Maybe this is why you work so hard at your job. Maybe this is why you you are trying to make so much money and and impress your dad or something like that. It's because there's an inner voice that you're trying to get rid of, an inner voice that says you're a bum and you're worthless and you're trying to get rid of that. And so often our lives become an argument. They become a litigation. John says, why do we need an advocate? Why does anybody need an advocate? Because sooner or later we will break the law and find ourselves in court. And there will be accusers. What are you going to do then? Now, now you can try to defend yourself. You could say, I'm going to make my own defense. I'm going to be my own litigator. But but everybody knows that when you go to court and you try to represent yourself, it's a disaster. (laughs) Don't ever do that. And you may believe maybe God is joining the voices. God is there wanting to accuse me and condemn me. But here's what John is saying, is that in Jesus Christ, this is why the work of Jesus is so crucial. In Jesus Christ, we have a defense attorney. Notice what John says. If anybody does sin, if anybody finds himself breaking the law, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. John says that when you hear the voices, when you hear the accusations, he says if you're a Christian, if you're someone who truly knows God, you remind yourself that in Jesus Christ you've got an advocate. God is not against you. God is with you. God is in your corner. God is on your side. Jesus Christ is your defense attorney. Jesus Christ is litigating for you. He is making your argument. So how can Jesus Christ be the the advocate that we need? Notice he says that Jesus Christ is a great advocate because he's Jesus Christ the righteous. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is perfect. He's the advocate that we need because Jesus Christ is absolutely righteous and flawless. Let me ask you a question. What do you look like in court? What do you look like in court? The answer is you look like your lawyer. You are only as good as your lawyer in court. If your lawyer is eloquent and intelligent and brilliant, well, guess what? You are intelligent, eloquent, and brilliant. If your lawyer wins, you win. If your lawyer lawyer loses, you lose. It is your advocate's performance and not yours that will make or break you in court. Because in a very real way, your advocate is your substitute. You are in your advocate. Whatever your advocate does is imputed to you. And this is what Jesus Christ is for us. He is our substitute. He is our righteousness. You know, Jesus Christ for a Christian is more than just an example, you know, or the judge or the one that tells you what to do. Jesus Christ himself is your very righteousness. He represents you before the Father. You are in a very real sense in Christ as you approach God. In the book of Revelation, uh, there's a picture of Christians and they're wrapped in robes of righteousness, white robes of righteousness. And for every Christian, this is true. You are clothed in the righteousness of your advocate. You are just as righteous as Jesus Christ who is your substitute. Uh, Martin Luther said that on the cross there was a great exchange. We give Jesus all of our sin, and Jesus Christ imputes to us all of his righteousness. And so get this, as you stand before God, you are absolutely perfect and flawless, just as Jesus is. You are just as acceptable as Jesus Christ is, as you stand before God. And so Jesus is a great advocate because he's our substitute. His righteousness And his abilities are imputed to us. He's also a great advocate because he makes a flawless case. What is the case that Jesus makes as he stands before God for us? Well, I used to think it was sort of like this. Here's Jesus Christ, and he's this litigator, and he's got all these, you know, this enormous uh, caseload, and uh, there he is, you know, coming before God the Father, the judge, and he pulls out a a folder among this huge load, and, and Swanson says on there, and he goes and he takes my case and he goes to the father and says, oh, father, uh, Swanson again. I know he's always making these promises and I know he's a pastor and all that, but here he is doing the same thing again. And I know, uh, you know, but, but he means well. He's really not that bad. Father, I know, you know, please, pretty please, just give him a break. You know, after all, you owe me. I did go to earth after all. And so have, have, I'm asking, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the court. Please have mercy on my client. 
And then the father says, oh, you've twisted my arm. Oh, all right, I'll forgive him again. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is, is if Jesus is twisting God's arm and God, I'm just barely getting in by the skin of my teeth, who's going to say that he's going to let me off the hook every time? I sin and I sin and I sin. Who's going to say when God is going to say, that's it? I'm done. This Swanson character, what is wrong with this guy? Get rid of him. No, this is not the case that Jesus makes. An effective attorney makes a case. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. And here's what he says. He says, I am the propitiation for Brent Swanson's sins. Notice in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the world. The word propitiation means expiation. What does expiation mean? It means that in Jesus Christ, our sin has been paid for. Our sin is eliminated. Our sin is forgiven, forgotten, destroyed. Jesus Christ paid the full price for our sin. And this is his case. He goes before God and he says, yes, Brent Swanson is guilty. And Michael is guilty. And all of us are guilty but I've paid the price for his sins. And justice demands that you cannot get, to, you know, get paid, paid twice for the same sin. And so God, your justice demands that you accept this man. And this is the price, this is the case that Jesus makes. It is a case that demands justice. And this is why Paul sa- or John says earlier that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Not just merciful, but just forgive us. As you stand before God, you can stand there fully accepted, fully redeemed. According to God's justice, you can be there without apology. You know, I remember getting into college and, and feeling like I don't deserve to be here. You know, everybody else in this college was so much smarter than me, and I just felt like I don't deserve to be here. But what John is saying here is that if you are God's presence and Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins, you deserve to be there on the merits, not of your own merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ himself. He is faithful and just to accept you. Also, it says that he's he's the perfect lawyer because, because he does what he does out of love. He gave himself Our advocate comes and he's not only making a case, but he's giving himself. It's like the mom in the courtroom, right? Now, she was defending her very heart. She loved her son. She was going to bat for her son. She would die for her son. And Jesus Christ goes to bat for us out of love. Some lawyers will do work pro bono. You know, they'll do it for free. Jesus Christ does what he does out of love for us. So you are loved and you are accepted. And what John says is, this is what you need to know after you've sinned. You need to know that before the throne of God, you have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love love, has bled and died for you. you. You are there on the merits of Jesus Christ, and you can come into his presence, not apologetically, but claiming his advocacy for you. So why do we need an advocate? Because we are lawbreakers. Why is Jesus the advocate that we need? Because he's perfect and he he gives his perfection for us. And he's paid the price for our sins and he's done it all out of love. 
But let's get, look at the third thing, which is what practical difference does this make in our lives? Because this is, uh, you know, this is theology. You know, if you look throughout the theology books, Christ our advocate is, is uh, you know, it's always talked about and it's part of, you know, what the New Testament uh, talks about when it, you know, when it talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what practical difference does Christ your advocate make in your life? Number one, it gives you confidence. Later on, John will say, this is the confidence that we have before God. And we could ask him for whatever we want. You know, knowing that Jesus Christ is there going to bat for you, that God in Jesus is for you and on your side, it gives you incredible confidence in the world and incredible confidence before God. You know, a lot of us, you know, we, are, we feel like we just are not worthy, that we're not complete, that we're not approved. And what John is saying is, is that in the court of appeals that matters most, you're accepted. You know, you're trying to get accepted in so many areas of life, and what, what, you're trying to get everybody's verdict to be positive, and I, I want this person to like me and that person to like me, and I want to get this job and that contract, and you're always working and working and working, and John says, in the court of appeals that matters most, you're accepted. What confidence does that give you? And remind yourself of this confidence. Whenever, after you sin and you hear the voices, just remind yourself, maybe pull out this scripture, or pull out some other scripture that reminds you that Jesus Christ has died for you. And tell yourself, I am accepted, and it's not based on my own merits, but his that I come into God's presence. One of my favorites is a little hymn that says, May well the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. You know, re religious people can sometimes be the least confident of all people before God. You know, our, did you hear the rain? That is loud. <laughs> you know, and we can be so defensive about our own record and our own righteousness. And what John says is be confident. You know, if somebody comes to you and starts to criticize you, you know, if you're a religious person, you start to fall apart and you get all defensive and maybe you fall into despair or you get angry. And John says, relax. It doesn't matter what they say about you. Jesus Christ is the opinion that matters. When someone criticizes you, you look at them, you laugh, and you say, you don't even know the half of it. I'm a whole lot worse than you think. But although I am guilty, Jesus Christ has gone to bat for me. You see, this gives you confidence. It also gives you security. You know, when you know that you've got a high priest in heaven who's on your side, that God and Jesus is for you and not against you, it gives you a deep sense of security in life that helps you face anything. I was reading Ruth uh, this past week, and uh, in the book of Ruth, uh, you know, she's, all this tragedy is going on in her life. You know, husband dies, sons die, and everything's horrible. And she goes back to uh, Bethlehem, where she's from, and all of her friends say, oh, is this... Is this, uh, Naomi is who it was. <laughs> Na is this Naomi? And she says, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. Because the Almighty is against me. How many of us feel that the Almighty is against us? And what John is saying categorically here is that God is not against you. In fact, in Jesus Christ, God is for you. And if you know God is for you, then you can face anything in life. You know, somebody said that if you've got, I think it was Tim Keller said that if you have a strong marriage, 
you go into the world in strength. You know, if that core relationship that you have, there's security and there's strength there, you go into the world in strength and you could face almost anything if your marriage is strong. Or you think about a child who grows up in a secure home environment. You know, they've got that core strength, you know, from being loved and accepted and they go into the world with that strength and they could face all sorts of things. And when you know that God is for you in Jesus Christ, when you know that you've got an advocate, you can face anything in life. God is for you. Paul would say this, if God is for you, who could be against you? Famine, peril, sword, economic disaster, all of these things could be against you, but you need to know that God is your advocate. Bless you. Finally, I think what this does practically is it helps us be obedient. It helps us not to sin. You remember, this is John's reason for writing. He says, little children, I'm writing to you so that, verse one, you may not sin. And someone says, John, if you don't want those people to sin, your little children to sin, well, you've just taken the teeth out of sin here. You've just said that you've got an advocate, no matter what you've done, Jesus Christ will forgive you and go to bat for you and that all your sins are paid for. You just took the, you should tell them no, that if you sin, God's gonna cast you out. Then they won't sin, really. You know, fear is a great motivator, I think, to keep us from doing bad things. Any youth pastor knows that. But fear has its limits, and there's a better motivation. You know, if you're a boss at work and and you want your employees to really work for you, you know, you could put fear out there and say, if you don't do a good job, I'm going to fire you. Or you could give them lots of money, and they could be motivated by money to do well. But the best motivation is love and loyalty. And John says, I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, you've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for your sins. In him, your sins are paid for, forgiven, and forgotten. This gives you confidence and security, and it actually helps you not want to sin anymore. Because you love God. You love your advocate. You know, in the courtroom with the the guy and his mama there, you know, as they walked out of the courtroom, he looked at his mom and he said, I love you, mom. And it was, it was, um, it was tender. And he did love her. And I think you do love God when you know that he's for you. Right, it changes your attitude. You know, Martin Luther, uh, he was a monk and he was so sensitive about his sin. And at one point, the guy, one of them says, well, don't you, one of his uh, uh, confessors said, uh, don't you love God? And he says, love God, I hate God. He says, if I'm honest, God is a judge and he, he's against me and I'm always trying to, to live up to his standards But then Martin Luther learned that God was his advocate. In Jesus Christ, God had forgiven him, that he was made righteous, that his sin was expiated, and that he was given the holiness and acceptance and the identity of Jesus. And Martin Luther began to obey God out of love. John says, we need Jesus. In fact, the more you know God, the more you're going to appreciate Jesus because in Jesus, you learn that you have an advocate. Do you know God as your advocate? 
Is God still a judge, cold out there condemning you, or do you know the God in Jesus who is for you? Do you know at the core of your being that God is going to bat for you? Do you know that? John says, if you do, then you will be coming to know God in a deeper and deeper way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that in Jesus Christ you go to bat for us, that you are our propitiation, that before the throne of God we have a strong and perfect plea. And God, I imagine that there are people here today that are, that are dealing with the voices, the voices in their lives that are accusing them and condemning them. And God, I pray that you would assure them this morning of the gospel. This is the gospel. Not that we work our way into your presence, but in Jesus Christ, we have a perfect plea. We have a high priest whose name is love. We have an expiation and our sins are gone. I pray that we would stand boldly. God, now that as we worship, that we would come into your presence with courage. God, that you would assure us of our pardon, that you would help us know that we have a new identity in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.